I'm Dr. Jay Anders, and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. Hello, everyone. I'd like to uh, welcome you to another episode of Tell Me Where It Hurts. Today's guest I've known for over 15 years, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we met way back when. I was working for an EMR company called Integrate, uh, which now no longer exists. It was absorbed into two other companies in its, its lifespan. And we were looking at a documentation system that was provided uh, by Medicom Systems, uh, of which our guest is a part of today. And it just didn't seem to be working the way we thought it should. So I made an appointment, uh, went down to Medicom, and that started a relationship that has gone a, a lot of places, uh, including me learning a lot about informatics as well as design, as well as having a good friendship uh, with today's guest. Um, today's guest is David Leroux. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Medicom Systems. He joined Medicomp in 1985 and has responsibility for operations and product management, including customer relationships and marketing. Prior to joining Medicomp, Dave founded a company that installed management communication networks in a large enterprise such as the World Bank, DuPont, Sinai Hospital in Baltimore. The Sinai Project was his first PC-based LAN system using email and groupware and was widely acknowledged as one of the largest, most successful implementation of this technology. Dave's work at Sinai has led to the founding of a medical building co billing company. He had led in turn to his partnership with Medicom Systems and realizing that the healthcare industry had made use of information technology that almost any other industry, particularly the ones in clinical care, Dave knew immediately that the potential of Medicom's powerful technology and joined the company to help fulfill Peter Galtra's vision for Medicom. Welcome, Dave Leroux. Thank you, Jay. Uh, glad to be here, and thanks for having me. I look forward to our conversation. So you've had a very interesting entry into healthcare IT. Could you talk a little bit about how you got into healthcare IT and the motivations you had behind that? Because you came from the billing side and just to base communication side. So we'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Uh, sure. You mentioned uh, Sinai Hospital. And when I was working with Sinai Hospital in the uh, late 80s, I met one of their uh, surgeons who was having medical billing issues and uh, developed a, a real trusted relationship with the senior management of Sinai. So he asked me if I could help him with medical billing. I knew nothing about medical billing, uh, but I have a background as a CPA. So I figured I'll just hire the best person I can find to run the business. And now I have a customer. So I became a reseller for a, uh, the leading medical billing package at the time. Uh, put it in uh, to his practice, and it was uh, very successful. The people I hired to work uh, in, at the company uh, were so good, I didn't have all that much to do, except to not get in the way. Uh, kind of same way I run Medicomp now. Great people, let them do their job. And then I met 
other customers who wanted billing systems. One of them was the private medical practice of the internal medicine group of Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. That's where I was at the time. After about two years of being my customer for a billing product, they said, you know, we'd really like to get into electronic medical records. Can you help us? And again, I said, no, I don't know anything about that. But they said, could you at least find out what's out there for us? So I did some, you know, I went out, I looked at all the packages and uh, they said, can you get these people in here to show us what they have? So third Wednesday of every month, I brought in vendors. And after about six months, they said to me, you know, Dave, we really like you. You're a nice guy, but you're wasting our time. These things don't do anything useful for us. And I said, well, what are you looking for? They said, well, we're very highly trained knowledge workers. We know what we want and none of these systems provide it. We know when we're treating somebody with congestive heart failure, the things we need to look at. And they seem to think that all we need to do is fill out uh, what was then a HICFA 1500 billing form and send it in. And you can't find anything in these systems. They weren't designed to work or think the way clinicians think. If you can find one that does, bring them in. So then I let people that I worked with know what we were looking for. And they called me one day, about two years later, and said, we met this guy named Peter Golter out in Chantilly, Virginia. And he showed us on the trade show floor that uh, if, if you want to see the information for a clinical problem or diagnosis, all you have to do is click on the screen and you'll see the labs, the medications, all the things relevant for that. And uh, they said, it, he, he described it as, tell me what you want to know in this record and I'll present it to you. And that became our clinical relevancy engine. But that was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. So I asked Peter to come up to Baltimore to show it to my friends at Hopkins. And they said, wow, that's exactly the way it should work. Oh, my God, who is this guy? And uh, they were very impressed with the technology, with the fact that Peter had been working with physicians since 1978 to build this thing. When you're thinking about this, what do you need to see? What do you need to document? What do you need to know? And presenting it. Of course, this was all in you know, those character-based screens, but he was still doing it. And they said, you know, if you could figure out a way to work this into the workflow and the thought flow of a physician with a nice user interface, that would be a dream. Do you think that you can do that? And we'll work with you to do that. So I came back down to, they said, but ask him these three or four questions. And they gave me three or four questions to ask Peter. And about the way the system worked. So I gave him a couple of diagnoses and I gave him a couple of symptoms and a physical exam finding. And they said, then tell us what this, you know, supposedly magic engine puts out. And I called the folks from Peter's office in Chantilly. And I said, well, this is what, this is the result it got. They said, oh my God, that's it. There's some really deep knowledge and learning behind this thing in this engine. This is the way to do it. So I got in my car and I used my brick phone. You remember in the 90s, they had those huge brick phones. I, I, I called my wife and I said, you know, Mary, ah, this is great news. Good news, bad news. 
good news is I found what I want to do. The bad news is it's not what I'm doing now. It's not billing systems. It's electronic medical records, which was, they were called EMRs at the time. Uh, so it took me a few years, but I convinced Peter to uh, let me join his company. And I've been there ever since. That's a real interesting path. Um, so I, interestingly, the EHR part of this. So Medicomp was an EHR vendor for a while and now has transitioned into a, a middleware vendor. What problem is Medicomp trying to solve in the middleware space that it wasn't solving in the EHR space? Well, in the EHR space, and this is the way the systems were written back in the 80s and 90s, the database, the programming logic, and the user interface were all intertwined. But when I asked Peter, I said, well, you know, what's your specialty here? What, what are you guys really focused on? What is it you're doing? What's the real value of what you've built? He said, well, it's in that middleware, that engine, that the, the relationships between the items, uh, relationships between diagnoses and everything else. He said, I said, well, then why are you bothering with building a database underneath it? You know, and, and we talked to other people, and they said, why are, you, why are you doing the UI? Everybody wants to build their own UI. And this was right when, you remember, Windows 95 came out. All of a sudden, you had GUI tools in the, you know, in the commercial space. And we said, let, it, let other people do that. You guys have the, the glue that holds the whole system together that supports the way clinicians work and think. Do you want to be a vendor to a very specific set of people who buy a specific product from a specific company? Or do you want your stuff widely used and make it available to anybody who's supporting clinicians? So we went to, we hadn't quite decided. We went to Hims in Atlanta. I think it was in Atlanta in 1996. And that was the year that, you know, uh, I think it was SMS at the time and, you know, showed Novius and, uh, HBOC, which became McKesson, showed Smart Medical Record, and Pegasus showed up, and uh, Clinical Logic became Medical Logic with that. And everybody had these huge booths, you know, two stories. And, you know, we're, we're back in the corner by the, you know, freight dock. And every time they open it, our little 10 by 10 thing is shaking. And I said, okay, Peter, they are saying that they need what we have. If we compete with them as an EMR vendor, they're not going to license it from us. What do you want to do? You know, do we want to supply all of those companies or do we want to give away equity and control of our business to raise the money to, for, to compete with them for marketing so we can have a two-story booth? No, let's pare it down. Let's take it down to its components. We were fortunate the timing at the time was people were starting to think about you know, core technology with APIs that you could link to. Now, 10 years later, in you know, 2002 to three, web APIs stuff started to come up. But at that point, we decided, let's strip out a database. Let's strip out the front end. Let's work on the core engine and write interfaces to it so it can be integrated to any system that wants to support clinical users at the point of care. So we took two years, we completely re-architected and rewrote it uh, so that uh, it could be embedded in any system that wanted to license it from us. And uh, that's the way we've approached it ever since. We've, of course, in the meantime, had to build some tools so that people could use standard web components, APIs, uh, build their own UIs around it, uh, data 
interfaces to go back and forth. I had to implement Fire. We had to map to all the terminology standards uh, starting in uh, 2003 when the government announced their clinical reference terminology standards. So there's a lot more involved in it now, which we wouldn't have been able to do if we were trying to do everything. So we just focus on that one thing, the clinical relevancy engine, the technology to embed it in any modern system, and even some ones that aren't, and all the mappings and administrative stuff you need to do quality measures, uh, HCC uh, documentation validation. So our, our core thing is that engine. And we made that decision in 96 uh, when our little booth was shaken in the wind and everybody else had houses. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the, the EHRs like McKesson and HBOC. I was actually on the physician advisory board for HBOC for several years. And it was interesting to see how physicians would interact with whatever system that they were being asked to interact with, especially that one. And Smart Medical Record was supposed to take the world by storm, and it's not with us anymore. And we've both seen EHRs come and go, get better, grow, go out of business. It's, it's just kind of all over the place. And people now are talking about the post-EHR world. We've, we've now got everybody has one. They may like it. They may not. It may work. It may not but they all have one. What do you make of this post-EHR world and, and the state of the healthcare IT industry right now and what they're trying to do? Wow. That is a big, big question. A good one, but a big one. Uh, to me, the post-EHR world, basically, you, 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 you just touched on it. Post-EHR world is, okay, everybody has one. Now what do we do? And here's how it happened. We're in a post-EHR world where almost everybody has one, but everybody's talking about burnout, usability, uh, problems with them. They're not geared toward value-based care. They're geared toward transactions and reimbursement, et cetera. But the journey has been, fasc it's been fascinating to watch the, P the, the, the federal government and the way that because Medicare and Medicaid and VA and DOD provide probably 50% of the care in this country or they underwrite it, okay? They're a driving force. It's interesting to see how they're still driving the conversation. They, you know, Medicare Advantage was introduced in I think 2003 or 2004. That's when we first started hearing uh, about hierarchical condition codes, value-based care, et cetera. And they realized, okay, they, they introduced the program, there was very slow uptake. Well, then the economy cratered, okay, 2008, 2009, and they said, well, uh, we need to pump some money into the economy, let's, let's put some in, and they had the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, and then the, part of that was the High Tech Act, now's our chance. If we're really gonna get to value-based care and be able to evaluate outcomes and do all that, we need better data. And we need to receive better data, but we can't get the data unless people have electronic systems. So let's give them money to buy electronic systems. Let's put this big carrot out there. Let's put this infrastructure in place. So I, you hear 35, 40, 50 billion dollars went out and they said, here, we're going to give you this money to put in an EHR. And you've got to prove that you're making meaningful use of it. Okay. And they kept whittling down what meaningful use meant. And they whittled it down so much, it had a couple of interesting effects. 
everybody wanted the money. You know, it's always follow the money. Okay. Everybody wanted the money. So they did the minimum necessary to get the money. And at first it was 12 measures you got to meet. And then it was six. I don't even remember where it ended up, but it ended up being enough money to get everybody to do it and limited enough requirements that you could do it with the systems you already had that were geared toward fee-for-service and transaction-based billing. So EHRs were still built on this architecture of transaction-based building, but now everybody had one. And by you know, taking that money, they agreed to play in this field as the government started to increase the requirements. Well, now we're in the period where everybody's got the money, so we're in the post-EHR world. Doctors are having burnout. I think you have a, a guest coming on uh, maybe next month, Janae Sharp, who leads a, a foundation to address physician burnout. So physicians, clinicians can't use these systems. Everybody's got one. And now it's just really interesting to watch this develop. Uh, just in the past two or three weeks, okay, the Office of the National Coordinator and CMS came out and said, here's the uh, trusted exchange framework and uh, common agreement for how information will be uh, transmitted between these. The fire standard developed. It's still relying on these systems. And now they're, they're saying, you better get ready because the data is now going to be accessible to patients. And when you receive it, you're going to be responsible for it. So the post-EHR world means everybody's got one, but oh my God, now what do we do? Especially when you connect all these systems together and you receive all this information that's, I call it stuff. Okay, it's not even information yet. It's it's stuff coming in. It's you know text documents. It's PDFs. It's some coded data. It's lab results coded in LOINC. Uh, it's met. It's medications coded in RxNorm. It's uh, diagnoses in SNOMED or ICD-10. It's it's textual notes, etc. And here it is. You've got an EHR. You agreed to do this. Here's how you exchange data. Now deal with it. And you, Dr. Anders, are the poor sap at the point of care. And the patient says, I'm coming in for my, you know, I'm, I'm calling you now because, you know, now we're in telehealth. I'm calling you. I, I, I need to, uh, I need to do a, a virtual visit and I have three or four problems and you can't find the information on any one of them in your own system yet. And now, particularly since it's coming in from other systems. So yeah, everybody has an electronic record, but that's almost like saying everybody has tires on their car. Okay. The Great tires enough. don't get I, the, Tires don't get you anywhere. Okay? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I remember the days of, of meaningful use. One of my prior jobs was to go around and give lectures to people on all the meaningful use measures. And you should have seen the deer in the headlights from the physicians out there saying, we got to do what? And we got to do how? Where? How's that happening? I'm going to get measured. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get money and it's going to come back. There's all kinds of, of ups and downs in that. And it was amazing the fits and starts that had to go through the system to make that happen. So there's been a lot of changes um, in, our, in our industry. We're talking about, you know, Meaningful Use came out and now we have the Cures Act and now there's TEFCA. And we found out from the ONC that TEF is, is going to have a little bit of uh, teeth in it. So people are going to have to start to share that information. Um, where do you see the challenges in this brand new interoperability standard and what it's going to mean to clinicians? 
That's a good question, Jay. The first challenge is going to be that you have to accept information from other systems and providers. That's going to be on top of the fact that in most of these systems right now, a provider can't find what they're looking for without searching through their own record. It, there's no way to bring it all together. That is going to get much worse when you have to deal with everybody else's, oh, I'm going to call it stuff, okay? Text, codes, all kinds of different codes, LOIN, SNOMED, ICD, RxNorm, CPT, ICD-10-PCS, all that kind of stuff is going to be coming in. It's going to be coming in in a format, FHIR, which is uh, very um, inefficient computationally. So to turn it into something where you can process it and find what you want very quickly when you're thinking about, oh, this patient's renal failure or diabetes or you know, rheumatoid arthritis, how do you find what you're looking for? People are having trouble doing it in their systems now, in their own systems. Can you imagine what that chaos that's going to create when it's coming in from everywhere, particularly when they're looking to do value-based care models with a interdisciplinary care teams helping a patient manage their chronic conditions and reduce the cost of care over time? Huge challenges for the industry, uh, technical challenges for interoperability, clinical challenges for clinical interoperability, and just being able to find anything you want. Providers are already suffering from burnout. One of your guests, Janae Sharp, leads a foundation just dealing with physician burnout. If you think it's bad now when people can't find what they want in their own systems, wait until they start receiving all this stuff. Yeah, I th I've talked to a lot of uh, clinicians around the country and my old colleagues, and they're a little bit panicked about exactly what that's going to mean to them personally in their practice when it comes right down to it. Um, you know, clinicians deal with one patient at a time, and you got to be responsible for that patient and how they're going to get to what they need to get at and be responsible for is yet to be determined. And I think people are starting to let that soak in a little bit, and it's starting to sober people up um, as to what interoperability really, really means. Well, switching the subject just a little bit, you know, COVID has basically changed everyone's life for the last two years. Um, healthcare is not, has been stretched, it's been bruised. Uh, we have found holes, we have found problems with intercommunication of needed data to actually manage COVID as we go forward. So thinking about how healthcare delivery has changed in COVID, uh, where do you think the industry is going and how do you think it should react? Well, you know, you've been in medicine for a while and you can remember back to the core transaction in a medical practice was a visit, an in-person physical visit. We haven't had many of those in the last two and a half years and somehow people are still trying to get the care they need. Now, the other thing that's happened is, oh, th this is a big one. I don't think we've even begun to deal with the implications of this. I'm pretty sure that you used to refer to the medical records on paper in your office as my charts. They were my charts, right? Now, the switch is they're the enterprise's records. 
But with Tefka and with the 21st Century Cures Act, they actually belong to the patient. Whoa, the patient's chart. So when you're treating the patient now as an enterprise, you have to defer to how the patient wants to be treated. And COVID has made people comfortable with telehealth. COVID has made people comfortable with virtual primary care. COVID has forced the industry to say, well, we've got to get the patients more involved. We've got to put together interdisciplinary care teams, and we've got to share information among each other because the patient's not in the office right now to do the hands-on sort of confidential conversation they used to have with their provider in the room with the door closed. Everything's changed. And now Tefka comes along in 21st Century Cures and says, not only that, but you've got to find all the information on the patient and the patient can control access to it from anybody who's treated the patient, including the home care team, because virtual primary care, uh, bio, you know, biosensors, the family, the whole care team is not just in an office anymore. It's everywhere in the world that patient has gone or been or people they've talked to. It's going to change everything. And what I find fascinating is that really the United States is a little late to that party. Um, Patient-centered medical records are all over the world. And they, some countries started out that way. It's always the patient that owned the record, never the physician. And now all of a sudden, you're right. We're changing that paradigm. It's the patient's medical record. And quite frankly, that's where it should be anyway. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how that actually starts to move the needle. Because I think once patients start to realize what they actually have, what the conversations are between specialists about their condition, things are going to start to open up a little bit. And they're going to get more involved because they'll know more. Now, there's going to be a translation issue between med speak and patient speak, but we'll have to work our work our way through that somehow. You know, we're closing in on trade show season. Hims is coming up again. Uh, Vive, a, a new type of trade show is starting up. So it's, you know, it's time for everyone to start to talk about uh, the buzz that is going around and you and I have both been around this horn several times, uh, both separately and together, uh, where the buzz is big data or the buzz is AI, or now the buzz is the hang the microphone in the room and magic happens. Uh, most of us who have any kind of reality to that um, start to say, mm, maybe that's really not going to happen. Um, so what do you think the buzz is going to be this year at all of the trade shows? And what, uh, what do you think that Metacomp is going to be able to add to what you're doing? Well, part of the buzz is going to be the fact that Tefka is now making things real. There's also other things going on in the background. One of the things that everybody, all the vendors are hoping for now, and the providers are hoping for now, is the EHRs as they're currently offered in the, in the industry are so bad that everybody's goal is to make it so that the providers never have to deal with them. I mean, that's how bad it is because the EHR by itself now, right now, is a task. And not only one task, it's a whole bunch of tasks that have been layered onto the providers. 
And it's not a tool. I mean, the EHR now should be propelling us forward into, I mean, just yesterday, the CMS Innovation Center made an announcement that it's their goal. They don't think they'll meet it, but it's their goal to have 100% of Medicare patients in an accountable plan by 2030. Now, I would have thought that was crazy five years ago, but I've seen Medicare Advantage, the, the, the percentage of Medicare patients in Medicare Advantage plans is now what? You have, you have this information better than I do. What is it now? It's about, about 40%. 40%, 40%. About 40%. They, they want to move that as close as they can to 100% by 2030. Wow. Can you imagine what that's going to do? Particularly right now, you need better data shared among everybody that that patient's ever seen or helps provide care. And right now, if you think of the way EHRs, as they are right now, are, are configured, the EHR is an anchor. It just keeps the, the enterprise from moving forward into this new sort of environment we're working in. It should be a propeller, okay? It should lift the anchor and it should propel us forward into a future where all the data is shared. You can find whatever you want, no matter where it was provided. The patient can provide the access they need. And, and by the way, we'll never have a national patient identifier, but the FDIC and other uh, organizations are working on a standard way to verify person, personal identity without a patient identifier. We've seen some of that turn up. So that means that the, the patient can, you know, can maybe able to, within five years, control who has access to which parts of their medical record. But in order to do that, you got to have a way of classifying the data and, and sharing it and the person who receives it being able to find it. Things are going to change radically. And right now, the answer at, that pe people are touting is, you don't have to worry about all that. We're just going to hang some microphones in the room, capture the sound, and magically turn it into data. I call that magical thinking rather than practical application of technology to get better data to provide better care. So Medicomp has always been out on the, the, I would say, not just the bleeding edge. It's really out there beyond the cut when it comes to technology and things to assist physicians. And one of the things that we strive for is to make sure that we make that a tool, not a task. So what are some of the, the fun things and, and things we should look for coming out of Medicomp this year? Well, a couple of things. We've been working on, you know, some people call it clinical documentation improvement, uh, clinical quality initiatives, et cetera. We have mapped all the standards. We have the clinical relevancy engine to present what's relevant, et cetera. But a uh, couple things are, are coming. About 10 years ago, we did a project for what I call voice to data speaking directly to our clinical data engine. The speech technology at the time was not quite there. We believe it is now. So one of the big initiatives we're working on is we just put Quip Clinical Lens, which is that one-click view of saying, you know, focus on patient diabetes and you just see that information. Switch, hypothyroidism. We're working on that. And you can do it right now. We put it in the Cerner app gallery, one-click, et cetera. But by the end of the year, we want to be able to talk to that. We want to be able to talk to the data engine and just give it instructions to say, view diabetes status, view chronic renal failure status. 
and have it automatically filtered on the screen and then be able to use dynamic clinical grammars to just say the things I want and have them entered as data mapped into that clinical relevancy engine, coupled with the capability for somebody to use the new clinical uh, query language, CQL, coming out of the government to actually author their own guidelines to layer that on all based on data, making it relevant at the point of the care and having the documentation be the data, or if you wanna say the data is the documentation without having to go through this interim process where you capture a bunch of text, uh, translate it, use an NLP with about a 10 to 30% error rate and call that your, your data. I mean, you wouldn't stand for that on your bank statement. Amazon wouldn't stand for that with their SQ, SKUs in their warehouse, and people shouldn't stand for that in their clinical data, especially when they start seeing it and seeing the errors. Because remember, with Tefka, the patient's going to have access to it. So it's going to put a lot more pressure on the systems to manage that data and present it clearly, not only to clinicians at the point of care, but when the, when the patients see it, and then they say, wait a minute, what is this? So it, it's going to be very interesting. So we want to tie together the tools for the docs, the tools for the other caregivers, including family. Here's an example. Uh, five years from now, I'd like patients to have an app on their phone, and that app engages them. I get discharged after, say, a surgery. And what's one of the biggest problems when you get discharged from surgery? Post-surgical infection. Okay. Okay, if, if, that, if, if I know that patient has a post-surgical infection, write a little guideline aimed to the patient and say, hey, if you are willing, are you willing to participate in this engagement thing if we give you some kind of incentive? And I'm not going to say what the incentives are because I don't want to talk about money, but that's what people care about, okay? And getting well and say, okay, you've been discharged. Um, you have... Uh, we want to avoid post-surgical infection. Will you agree to take a little notice each day just to remind you to change your dressing, to do this, to do that? An informational reminder. And then respond that you received it. Okay, that's, step, that, that's one type. Second one is, are you willing to report clinical data points back to us if we give you five or six questions where you can say, is the wound oozing? Is it warm? Do you have fatigue? Are you feeling thirsty? And they just answer it. It comes right back to the provider. There's a guideline operating there on the data. Somebody gets alerted and says, oh, you need to come in. When did you change your dressing, et cetera? Those tools are going to become available. And it's better to have the patient let you know they need help than show up in the emergency room. I mean, if, if people want to, people, everybody right now is talking about managing cost. Cost. That sounds so much like fee-for-service world. If you manage care properly, you will reduce the cost of care. And this, these accountable care organizations, it will work for the patients. So you need better data. You need to link it together. You need to engage the patient. The tools are coming together to do that. And the incentives and the penalties are being put in place to treat the, the organizations appropriately depending on whether they do it or don't do it well. And I think within five years, all of that stuff can come together. But you need the data to do it, and you need to engage and inform everybody along. You need to give them something 
that works for the way they work and think. I absolutely agree. And then I'm looking forward to seeing that day come someday. Now, I ask every one of uh, my guests the same question at the end of our talk. It's if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and change one thing in healthcare IT and it would be absolute, what would it be? One thing. Wow. One thing. One thing on my wish list. I would want to make the sharing of data universal for anybody who treats a patient. I would want all barriers removed. I would want all blocking gone. I would want a standard for the exchange and security of that data and uh, infrastructures in place so that uh, the data could be trusted and found and available. And I see the, I see the path there. Uh, so it's, this, is, this is, might be the most exciting time to be in our industry ever. Yeah. It's most challenging, but it is the most exciting. And there's a lot of people who would agree with that, what your wish would be. And I think there's a lot of people in Washington right now trying to work towards that to get to that, that point. So thank you for being on the podcast today. Um, if people need to get a hold of you to ask questions, inquire as to what uh, Medicomp does or what you talked about today, how would they do that? Uh, they can contact me through our website at, you know, on our, there's a link there, info at medicomp.com. And my personal email is dlaroe at medicomp.com. Well, thanks, Dave, for being on the podcast today. It's, as usual, so much fun talking with you, and we'll be talking in, in the future. Okay, thank you. Thanks for having me, Jay. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about Medicomp Systems, visit our website at www medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MedicompSys or myself at MedicompDoc or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.